This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardoj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest, we're delighted to host a very special guest from the United Kingdom, Sir Ivan Lawrence. Sir Ivan Lawrence is a former member of the British Parliament, a distinguished barrister and member of the Inner Temple. As member of the Parliament for 23 years, Sir Ivan was heavily involved in improvements to criminal justice and continued his practice in the criminal courts. In the British Parliament, Sir Ivan served as Chairman of Home Affairs Committee, Chairman of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, and a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. He has won a considerable reputation, mainly as a defender in some of the UK's most prominent cases. His practice has taken him to the Divisional Court, Court of Appeal, the House of Lords, and in a mass murder war crimes trial to The Hague in the Netherlands. He is qualified to appear in the International Criminal Court. He served as chairman of the parliamentary group Conservatives Friends of Israel. His affiliation includes the Board of Deputies of British Jews and Trustee of the Holocaust Educational Trust. He serves on the Executive Advisory Board of the International Leaders Summit. It is our great honor to welcome Sir Ivan Lawrence to America's Roundtable. Welcome, Sir Ivan. Welcome, Sir Ivan. Thank you very much. Delight to be here with two such hard-working members of the international community. Thank you, Sir Ivan. Well, during your excellent speech at the Third Jerusalem Leaders Summit, organized by International Leaders Summit in Jerusalem, Israel, you defined the rule of law, its guiding principles, and increased threats to the rule of law that we are experiencing today. Sir Ivan, could you kindly share with our audience about the rule of law and your observations about the threats to the rule of law? in the Western civilization? First, you have to define the rule of law uh, because it doesn't just mean law and order. There was law and order in Hitler's Germany. There's law and order in the authoritarian Putin regime and the Xi regime in China, and no doubt in North Korea. What we mean by the rule of law is North and law and order within a democracy. And if you try to define the rule of law, it's very difficult, but we know what it is from a number of the principles that we observe all the time. No one should be above the law. The law must be equal applying to everyone. Everyone should have access to justice. Government must govern within the limits of its power, which is um, set out by law. That's number one. Number two, it the law must protect fundamental human rights. And number three is the state should comply with international laws as far as possible. Fourthly, issues should be resolved by courts operating within a fair legal system. Fifthly, 
there must be an independent judiciary that's not told what to do by the politicians in the state. Sixthly, there has to be the minimum of discretion to be uh, to be exercised by the police and the army and the navy and other authorities. They must have very little discretion. They must follow the rules of their particular systems, and they're interpreted by the courts. And then it's a fundamental principle of systems with the rule of law is that no one is above the law, and the law is equal for everybody, however important they may be. And it's also a very important feature of the rule of law that everyone should have access to justice, access to the courts. Uh, that doesn't make up a definition, but it does sort of explain what the features, I think, are of a rule of law. And um, that's what makes our countries, our particular countries, great and rule of law countries, because they follow those principles or try to. Uh, Sir Ivan, if you could kindly elaborate on the threats, on the threats to the rule of law as you see them today to our Western civilization. Well, the threats um, to the rule of law are very considerable today. Firstly, we've had to pass anti-terrorism laws because of the amount of terrorism there is in the world. And those laws restrict our freedoms. They impose obligations on individuals' behavior that normally under a rule of law you wouldn't have to do. They, they inhibit our travel. They inhibit our free expression of ideas and thoughts. That's the first, the anti-terrorism laws as a threat. Secondly, there are the threats to our privacy. Everywhere you go, there are thousands of CCTV cameras in the streets, in the restaurants, in the places that we go, watching our every, every movement. That's a massive infringement with, of civil liberties. There's the social media the Facebooks and the Twitters and the inter all the internet um, agencies that impose upon our privacy, which is a fundamental principle of the rule of law. We've been concerned at the fact that a lot of people in our legal systems, to be fair, uh, are acquitted when they're guilty. And so the governments have been saying, our governments have been saying that we, we better improve, we better tighten up on our system so that we acquit fewer of the guilty and only convict the innocent. And that's required a reversal of burden of proof. And now we keep introducing laws where the burden is no longer on the prosecution to satisfy the jury or the court beyond any doubt of guilt. It's, you, you, the burden is on the defense to explain themselves. And so we have to give, for example, in England now, we have, if you're um, charged with a crime, you've got to tell the prosecution what your defense is long before the trial. You've got to give the names of your witnesses, and you've got to indicate what it is they're uh, expected to say, which is an enormous infringement. The prosecution, on the other hand, have to disclose everything, you know, everything that's even remotely relevant to the trial, which is enormous burden upon them. 
access to justice is um, is vital. If everybody's going to have access to the courts, that's a fundamental rule of law. But in our country, if you are a defendant, you normally have to be defended by the finances of the state. And if you prosecute, you have to be prosecuted at the finances of the state. There's a limited scope in Britain for criminal offences to be privately defended. Well, if you slash back, as we've done, on the money that there is available to pay barristers and solicitors to defend people or to prosecute them, then you're savagely cutting back on access to justice. And you're doing more than that because if you're driving more people to defend themselves um, and the lawyers are leaving the profession because they can no longer afford to, to earn no money, then you're lowering the standard of, of justice and the laws. For example, I think that the greatest single factor for defending innocent people is the power of cross-examination and also convicting the guilty. And cross-examination doesn't exist in some countries. It only exists in a very limited way in in the Napoleonic um, law countries in, in Europe. It's one of the reasons why I want to leave <laughs> the European Union, um, because I don't like their system. If you restrict the powers or, or you don't develop the power of cross-examination, then mistakes are made uh, in law, wrong people are convicted, and uh, innocent very often have to suffer. So that's another factor, access to justice with by properly financing it from the state is vital. Then there's another uh, threat, and that's it's an enormous threat. It's cybercrime. Indeed. Economic crime. Now, I would say, officially, it, it takes up a third of all our crimes in the United Kingdom, but I think it's much more than that. It must be nearer 60%. I mean, a, a lot of banks and institutions don't tell the police or tell anybody that they've been the subject of cybercrime because they'd be too embarrassed to say insurance companies and banks. So a lot of it is just hidden. It's massive cybercrime. And that is uh, because money can be moved, which is the essence of economic crime, money, the defendant making money, it can be moved out of sight in the twinkling of an eye by pressing a button on a computer. I mean, that's massive. And it's not just billions and billions and billions of pounds being lost of um, honest money. It's um, also the fact that you can't get the villains because they're unidentifiable. So that's another of the massive threats to the rule of law. I mean, I could go on, but there are five or six of them which are very substantial these days. You touched on the reverse burden of proof, and you touched on, actually, in 2017, the UK passed the Criminal Finances Act to tackle money laundering, corruption, and terrorism financing. And the unexplained wealth order was one of the tools specifically at accessing and explaining the origin of assets that appear disproportionate to lawful income of high-risk individuals. So now, how do we walk that thin line where the rule of law means that no one is above the law and law must equally apply to everyone when there's a 
discrepancy between the countries where like Eastern Europe's countries do not have the rule of law and there were instances of corrupt politicians and their private partners in crime embezzling public funds and continuing to extort bribes coming to Western civilization, rule of law countries and purchasing properties that, as you mentioned, uh, showing that income in investment. So how do we walk the thin line between the rule of law and individuals abusing their own systems, enriching themselves, causing, financing some other institutions in the West where everything is becoming corrupt. So how do we stop that? Well, uh, we stop it by having more efficient laws. For example, there didn't used to be a money laundry, a law against money laundering in Britain. Only very recent, in the last 20 years, before then, we didn't have a money, a crime of money laundering. It was all swept up on the general activities. And when somebody was convicted of fraud, then uh, it was asked what various sums of money were, and that was taken from them. But there wasn't a crime of money laundering. And there was no suspect, suspicious transaction law. So we introduced a suspicious transaction law. And now banks and institutions have got to be prepared to ask questions of customers who bring in gold or bring in cash in large sums of money. And if you go to a bank now where with uh, more than a few hundred pounds, they say, excuse me, where did you get it? Now, that's making our laws more efficient and is one of the ways in which we can deal with economic crime. Another way is, as you've said, the um, unexplained um, wealth orders. And another thing that we've, that we've done is we, we've said, look, it's very difficult to convict anybody on the criminal law standard of proof. Uh, you have to be certain beyond doubt. Why don't we say to people, well, we can't prove that you, that you stole this or that you came into it dishonestly beyond reasonable doubt. Looking at the reality of it, it's how did you get it? It's, it's highly problematic. So the civil standard of proof has been substituted for the criminal standard of proof. All that happens with a civil standard of proof is you have to prove that on the balance of probabilities, you're more um, at, at fault than, than otherwise. And that's not the same thing as being certain beyond doubt that you've committed a crime. So there are ways, I've, I've deplored it. I mean, I've said that this is an interruption with the rule of law, the principles of the rule of law, but nevertheless, it's, it's a, a response to a threat that we've tightened up these laws. And we're tightening up, we're, we're making, I think we're making um, a register of members of countries with offshore finances organizations so that we know the names of people who are um, operating perhaps money laundering systems, which we never are able to do unless there's a register in which people have to register their names. Then we can have more efficient police we can have more efficient systems in our courts. We can have closer relations between various countries with their laws so that we can operate our laws interchangeably. 
And we can have conferences where we all get together, the academics and the practitioners and the politicians, and work out what's working in their countries. And so we can spread, uh, as we do, and I, I attend um, a symposium on international law every September at Jesus College, Cambridge, where 90 countries send a 1,000 um, of their people to do just this, to interrelate, to discuss, to work together, networking, and explain how systems work well in the United States or a state of the United States, and it might be a good idea if we had this in Britain or France or Germany or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's what we can do um, to try and improve the system. Whether and to what extent we'll improve it, uh, I don't know because cybercrime is now almost un unstoppable. Not easy to see how having a more efficient court system or a more efficient police system or more effective laws is necessarily going to stop what the com evil the computer can do, merely by pressing a button and, and transferring large sums of money to regimes that nobody, no government can get to. I mean, we have, a, we have a serious problem in the West when, uh, for example, the family of presidential candidate Biden was reported receiving funding or money from Moscow's mayor's wife and Ukrainian company that belonged to a former minister of resources, uh, which is involved in oil industry and also working with a Chinese company that is government-owned. In those instances, we see corruption, foreign corruption, seeping in the political system from a top-down where they can influence elections. And if media is complicit and not covering and reporting adequately mainstream media, and on the other side, we had a situation here in the United States where uh, social media platforms or big tech that you mentioned are shadow banning content, not showing it, censoring, and being protected as social media platforms, not as media, then that the corruption and the rule of law that we're talking about is a serious problem that we are experiencing today in UK and in the United States. Well, I, d I don't want to get into the conflict between Biden and Trump and whatever it was on that the each accused the other. Um, of, but you make a very important point. If the media are able to report these things so that it, it can be raised and discussed in all of the areas where discussion is necessary, then that's a deterrent. And um, so the media, I mean, I, I, I slam the computer system and, uh, and Facebook and network. But the fact of the matter is that if the news is not fake, but is genuine, then that's by itself a, a sort of protection against infringements of the rule of law and the threats against the rule of law, because the newspapers and the um, digital media uh, will be alert to this and will bring it to people's attention. And, of course, the point behind it is that if you can expose wrongdoing to the light of day, uh, then you do much more to control it, if not to, um, to stop it, 
then everything that's kept secret and that nobody can see. So I should have said that one of the really important activities that are necessary to reduce the threats to the rule of law is to make more efficient and effective the media in all its forms. As we uh, talk about Brexit uh, in the United States in relation to the United States and the United Kingdom's talks on trade, uh, we also realize that at this very important juncture that there are ongoing talks in Brussels and in London about the conclusion of the Brexit process, whether there will be a deal achieved or whether there will be a no-deal exit. And indeed, the Brexit critics in Brussels had pushed the narrative that without the large EU market of some 500 million consumers, including Britain's nearly 70 million citizens, that the UK would falter and the economy would be adversely affected by not trading with the EU as a member. And indeed, the Brussels elite did not factor in that there is a greater trading world out there. The dynamic U.S. economy of 340 million people and the U.K.'s natural partners through the Commonwealth of Nations, a growing market of 2.4 billion people, including India's 1.3 billion inhabitants. Sir Ivan, uh, from your vantage point in Britain and your experiences uh, serving on the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Commonwealth Parliamentary Committee and the British Parliament, what are engaged UK citizens and leaders hoping for as we all look to the conclusion of the Brexit process? And will we see a negotiated deal or perhaps a no-deal exit? I've no idea what's going to happen at the end of this month when we have to exit. All I can say is something about what's behind all this. Five years ago, the British people were asked specifically in a referendum whether they wanted to leave the European Union. And by 52 to 48, which is quite a a percentage difference, it's a 4%, and very substantial in terms of a country which has 66 million people, including Northern Ireland and Scotland, um, we voted to leave. And that's what the people wanted and decided. We were given the opportunity to make that decision, and we made that decision. And we've spent five years trying to leave (laughs) because (laughs) there are so many complicated points and elements that have to be sorted out, and they haven't quite been completed. But let's look at some of the minuses of uh, Brexit, Brexit being... um, Um, Britain exiting the European Union. The minuses, I think, are roughly these, that to leave what you've been in for a large number of years and been trading happily and healthily with financially, looking at it financially and economically, is a big disruption of uh, 
settled processes of doing business. And as you point out, the, nearly you pointed out, the European Union is the British largest, biggest market. And to leave it is a massive change of ethos, attitude to, to giving up a whole lot of things in a sort of massive compromise of 28 nations. The great plus is that the sovereign UK can make its own decisions about agriculture, about fisheries, about food, about taxation, about the courts. It's not beholden to a European Union of a different system, of different types, with different courts and different interests. Of course, every country has its own interests. And we are outvoted 1 to 27 Mm. In the European Union and anything that we want to do to benefit ourselves over and above any compromises that might have been forced on us or been agreed by the European Union. So our ability to decide our futures for ourselves and to control ourselves in all of the areas or nearly all of the areas in which a country is sovereign, that's the plus because now we're able to do that. You know, the system is so different. It's not just a parliamentary system. It's different. The judicial, the legal system is so different. And these, all these European countries have had the code Napoleon. The judges are civil servants. In Britain, a judge is a practicing barrister for 20, 30, 40 years who has decided to become a judge and has been thought good enough to become a judge, but he's been independent all his life. He hasn't been beholden to the state. But if you've come up to be a judge through being a civil servant, well, that's a different sort of justice you may get. And that's a, a substantial plus for us to be away from that and, and back onto the independent judiciary line because we make our own decisions and we are in control of our own interests the world is now our oyster as you joel said when you were introducing uh, the subject just now we can trade with the united states we can trade with china we can trade with australia india africa indonesia malaysia the rest of the world that's much bigger than the european union and we can trade without tariffs or with lesser tariffs and without quotas or with lesser quotas. We can negotiate our own terms of trade with all of the countries and the rest of the world, which is our oyster. That's where the pearls will come. So the future of us economically are not hurt, except in the very short term until we negotiate trade agreements with all these countries. And uh, there's another factor. We pay £10 billion a year to the European Union to keep them going. Well, I know it doesn't look very much in what we're all spending on COVID in all our countries. But before COVID, it was a very substantial sum of money that we were giving to the European Union to subsidize the weaker part, uh, the weaker brethren in the European Union, the countries that couldn't really look after themselves without getting support from Germany, France, Britain, uh, you know, the hundreds of billions that were necessary to keep them going. Well, now we don't have to contribute 10 billion. We can spend that on our hospitals and even on our, our, some of our lawyers. So I have no doubt myself that it was a good thing to leave. 
And in fact, I have to tell you that I was a founder member of a group called the um, European Research Group, which was the little core and the backbone of the Leave movement. Congratulations. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Truly commendable. And I was, I was that in Margaret Thatcher's time in the 1970s, the wow. late 1970s and the 1980s. She was the prime minister from 79 to, to 80. That was one of the power driving forces mm. for getting us out of the European Union, was the European Research Group, of which I am proud to have been a founder member. So you would expect me to say this, because I've always been... Um, thought that we are better off as our own, in control of our own affairs. I haven't been turned towards that, which a lot of people have been. And we wouldn't have had a majority of the referendum if a lot of people hadn't changed mm -hmm. from being, let's be safe and stay where we are, let's be courageous, and let's be throw ourselves into the competitive world. Indeed. Uh, right. as a proud and effective and su successful country have got every reason of thinking we will be improve ourselves. The improvement of Britain, that's the reason why I support Brexit. Indeed, and Britain truly set the example of being a country that has truly advanced the importance of trade around the world, and it has great advantages in tapping into the Commonwealth of Nations. And uh, we truly uh, appreciate your leadership in this endeavor. It was a long-term battle, a Brexit. When you think ab about the original idea of countries coming together through e European economic community as a free trade zone of sovereign countries, enjoying free movements of goods, capital, and people, how did that morph into a corruption-prone political union whereby unelected bureaucrats in Brussels assumed ever-increasing unchecked power and are coming up with always new legislation for all EU member countries? United Kingdom is just probably the first country to leave the European Union and that we'll probably see more of the countries leaving. Well, um, maybe, maybe, um, maybe. In fact, um, it's quite interesting because um, we had a referendum, which, as I said, um, gave by 52 to 48% um, the leaving. France had a referendum to leave, and they were told to go back and vote again. Yes. A few months later and change their decision, which is what happened, why they're still there. And uh, Holland did the same, I think. Um, and <laughs> they said no, and then they were told they were very naughty, they must go away and uh, change their vote. So they changed their vote and uh, stayed in. So there are, you see, and then you, we see from time to time, you see, Greece runs out of money. Of course it does, if you know how Greece is governed. It's inevitable they run out of money. And uh, the European Union said, no, no, we can't keep funding you like this. So Greece came within an inch of leaving. If it had had any money of its own, it would have left. And there are other countries where they're, they're in two minds, but they stay because they're funded by the big nations, Germany and France. I mean, some of the smaller nations up in the Baltic there, 
um, can't really stand on their own two feet uh, and need help and assistance and deserve it, I suppose, but then that forces them to stay within the European Union. Britain's not like that. Britain's been a, a successful nation, a trading nation, as you pointed out, Joel, for hundreds of years. I mm-hmm. don't think we need worry too much about going broke. Exactly, <laughs> indeed. Well, we truly thank Sir Ivan Lawrence for joining us on America's Roundtable, and it is great to have a trusted ally Uh, a champion of freedom and a great partner of the United States joining us, Sir Ivan Lawrence. We thank you for your leadership, your principal leadership indeed, sir. Thank you, Sir Ivan. Thanks for asking me. I really enjoyed it. And um, America is a very, very important part of our history and our present um, living. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.